Hi friends and welcome to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. I'm Nicolette and we're glad to have you here joining with our church community. Do you have life in the name of Jesus? What does it even really mean to follow Jesus? Pastor Char Broderson continues our series Life in His Name in the book of John and starts by posing these questions. A lot is happening in this passage. Jesus enters Jerusalem with celebration and then he teaches his disciples a very important lesson. We must lay down our rights, comforts, and preferences to follow him, handing over our life as we take on his identity, the identity he chose for himself. How is this way of following Jesus being reflected in your life? Are there sacrifices in your life to be made? Are there crosses and burdens to be borne? If so, this is good. This means you are on the path of following Jesus. Keep going. There is a deeper relationship with Jesus as we participate in his suffering and follow him. Here on Sunday mornings, we're studying through the Gospel of John with this theme of life in the name of Jesus. And John gives us this uh, purpose statement, actually at the end of his Gospel, where he writes that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John tells us he's not writing an exhaustive biography on the life and works of Jesus, but he has purposely these stories, and he has done so to elicit faith. He wants to uh, stir up greater trust and dedication to Jesus and through that, that we might experience a quality of life, what he calls life in the name of Jesus. And so as we read through the Gospel of John, as we've been studying it, we are looking for how does this story, how is what Jesus is saying offering me to believe in a new way, to trust to a greater degree in order that I might experience life in the name of Jesus? Now, this morning, I want to answer in part this question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Because Jesus says here in this passage, whoever serves me must follow me. But in our story, what that following looks like, it radically shifts. Because in the beginning... It begins with this celebratory, joyous, kingly procession, what the people thought would be government takeover and shouts of Hosanna, shouts of political overthrow. If you will, it begins with triumphal entry, but it ends in the shadow of the cross. As Jesus talks about him being lifted up, as he talks about a kernel of wheat going into the ground and dying and remaining alone, these are actually two very different things in our minds. And so we want to talk this morning about what does it mean in this context to follow Jesus and what does that mean for our lives. So let's begin by talking about this so-called triumphal entry. Now there's so much going on in this chapter. The tension has risen in Jerusalem and among the Jewish people to maximum capacity. Remember, it says that because Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, now just hordes of people are going over to Jesus and following him. And the Jewish leaders, what uh, the 
Jewish Supreme Court, if you will, the Sanhedrin, has met together and has decided that they actually must hand Jesus over to the Romans and have him put to death. Otherwise, they're going to lose their authority and place, their power, even under the Roman regime. Now, this is all going on, and also we're told it's the time of Passover, which was that festival that commemorated God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt and really was essentially the birth of the Jewish nation. And Passover, this festival, actually would bring hundreds of thousands of Jews to Jerusalem. And they're all thinking about deliverance. They're all thinking about the birth of the nation. They have this hope in them of being released from oppression to the Romans and being led into the kingdom of God. So this would all be in the thoughts and minds of the people. And so as this you know, famous rabbi approaches Jerusalem, this one who has given sight to the blind, this one who has fed the multitudes, this one who has raised someone from the dead even four days after they were dead, his reputation precedes him and the people begin to hail him as the son of David, the Messiah, the longed-for king of Israel. And they begin to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And they take palm branches and they begin to wave them and they take off their clothes and they lay them out. Now, what we often miss in this story is that the palm branch is not just some, you know, fanfare kind of thing. You know, like, uh, anybody go to concerts recently? You know, everybody now turns on their cell phone light and just kind of waves it. And it's a way that we kind of, you know, the group identity that we're, you know, with what the entertainer's doing, we're all one, right? This is not what the palm branch is, right? It's not just a way to join in the fun and fanfare, okay? The palm branch was symbolic because it was the image that the rebels or zealots of Israel used when they minted their own coins to fund their insurrections. And the palm branch originally was used by Judas Maccabeus in the um, revolt against the Seleucid empires. When they were victorious, they hailed Judas Maccabeus with palm branches celebrating him and the victory that he had accomplished for Israel in beating back their enemies. So understand, when they are waving these palm branches, they're saying, we're doing it again. We're taking back the kingdom. We're taking back our identity as the people of God. We're taking back the authority. And this is our king, the one to lead us into it. This is the son of David. This is all in their minds. But as we read the story, Jesus is on a different path. And I wanted us to read this story because normally we would stop just with the triumphal entry. But remember, the breaks that we have in our Bibles, those were put there much, much later on. John is writing one continuous story, and I believe that all of this is to be taken together, the triumphal entry, but also Jesus' talk of his own glorification and what's going to happen there. And we see, if we take it all together, that Jesus is actually on a very different path than his contemporaries. And he's going to define for them, once again, as he has done throughout this gospel, what he is all about and what his kingdom is all about. Now, I think we need to recognize that Jesus doesn't rebuke 
the crowds. He doesn't stop their cries and cheers because he is the true king of Israel. He is God's anointed Messiah. He is here to deliver, to rescue and save, but not in the way that anyone expects. And so Jesus defines himself in one move. He finds a young donkey, sits on it, and rides into Jerusalem while the crowds cheer on, fulfilling this prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a donkey. Jesus is the long-awaited deliverer and king of Jerusalem, righteous, having salvation, and humble, Scripture says. Now, this is an interesting characteristic for a conquering king, isn't it? That he would be humble or lowly, as some translations say. Right? What we actually expect is a king to come in on a war horse, conquering, you know, having this great pomp and authority kind of about him. Actually, if you look into what the animal that Jesus is riding, this is actually a very, very small donkey, almost the size of a medium-sized dog. And so the whole scene is actually very comical. In order to ride this animal, Jesus most likely would have to lift his legs up. Right? It would look very, very silly like the, you know, animal of a hobbit or something like that. And yet Jesus chooses this animal to ride into Jerusalem to show his humility, to show his lowliness. But this doesn't stop the crowds. They still cheer and celebrate. And maybe it's lost on them. In fact, it's funny that John makes this comment that his disciples didn't even realize what they were doing. It's all lost on them. And it wasn't until after Jesus was glorified, that they realized they were fulfilling this specific prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Now, the religious leaders are so distraught over this scene. They exclaim this, see, this is getting us nowhere. All of our efforts are just meaningless, powerless. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And I think John includes that phrase on purpose because this is a big theme of John's gospel is that Jesus is not just the savior of Israel, but he is the savior of the world. That he has come into the world not just to rescue and redeem Israel from their sins, but to rescue and redeem the whole creation. And we see how even in his humility, his suffering and death, he is drawing all people to himself. And so John then includes this story. Well, actually, at the feast, here's an example of the whole world going after Jesus. There are some Greeks who have gone to the festival in order to worship. Now, these would be Greeks in the sense of culturally, um, maybe even their uh, ethnic background would be Greek, but they have converted to Judaism most likely and are considered God-fearers. And they have come up to the feast and they have heard about Jesus and they want to meet him. And they have this beautiful request that they go to Philip with, we want to see Jesus. And so they're brought to Jesus by Andrew and by Philip, the only apostles with Greek names. 
And I, as I read this, I'm always expecting like, oh, man, this could have been this beautiful scene where Jesus reveals himself to the Gentiles and we're kind of seeing like a foretaste of what's going to happen in the book of Acts. But none of this happens because Jesus goes off on some musings about seeds, plants, life, death, servants, masters, and glory. You wonder if Jesus even knows what's going on around him, right? He's just on a totally different level. What is going on? What's Jesus talking about? Seeds and plants going into the ground, dying, remaining alone. Well, we'll come back to this in just a moment. But it says this, that when Philip and Andrew came to Jesus with this request, he replies, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What is this? Richard Bauckham in his book, Gospel of Glory on the Gospel of John says, the whole gospel story moves toward what is called Jesus' hour. By this, John seems to mean the complex of events that occur in chapters 12 through 20, including the passion, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. This is the hour of Jesus' exaltation when he is exalted on the cross in order to be exalted in heaven. The cross is the climax of the work that God has given Jesus to do. And so it is the climax of his life of seeking God's glory, not his own. It is therefore also the climax of the revelation of God's glory in the flesh. Now, the statement by Jesus actually marks a turning point in the Gospel of John, so much so that uh, many commentators and Bible teachers have actually divided the book of John into two different sections. Section 1, chapters 1 through 11, is called the Book of Signs, where chapters 12 through 21 are referred to as the Book of Glory. The statement by Jesus, it's significant because since the beginning of this gospel, John, as well as Jesus, tells us that his hour had not yet come. Do you remember the wedding at Cana, that story? Jesus' mother comes to him and says, listen, they ran out of wine. He says, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And he keeps referring to this again and again and again throughout this gospel. Well, here it is. Jesus says, my hour has come. And it's this reference to a moment in his earthly ministry where he will be most glorified. It's finally arrived, and it is not what we expect about the glory of the incarnate Son of God. The hour will be marked by the lifting up of the Son of Man. This is a double meaning phrase that John uses, actually taken from Isaiah 53, where Isaiah writes, Behold, my servant shall be high and lifted up. The term can mean glory or glorification, but John also uses it to mean the hoisting up on the cross. This is Jesus' greatest moment of glory. 
I want you to think about that for a moment. That what Jesus considers his greatest moment of glory is where he identifies with our suffering, where he identifies with our sin. This is what our God considers the greatest moment of glory. This moment where Jesus hoisted up for the world to see how great the love of God. How incredible the condensation of our God to come to be one of us, to suffer our pain. To take upon himself our sin in order to defeat it in order we know ultimately to raise us up to new life. Jesus will be lifted up, but this lifting up will draw all people, he says. It will be a sign, Jesus' greatest sign of the love, justice, and power of God for all people to see and to believe on. It will be like a grain of wheat or a seed, which if it's left alone, it doesn't do much. But if it falls into the earth and dies, buried in the ground or planted, this picture of death and burial, it will produce a fruitful crop. So what looks like the grain or seed's demise is in fact the very thing that brings the harvest. Now, I referred to this whole scene earlier as a so-called triumphal entry because everything Jesus is doing is backwards and upside down for the fanfare of this triumphal entry. See, the people are hailing Jesus as the conquering king and he's talking about being executed. You have to realize that this is so upside down and backwards. In the first century in Jewish understanding, a crucified Messiah is a failed Messiah and no Messiah at all. No, in their minds, the Messiah is the conqueror. He is the king of kings. He is the son of David. He's in the same vein as Judas Maccabeus who would violently overthrow the enemies of the people of God and usher in the kingdom of God. But Jesus' version of the kingdom is so vastly different from his contemporaries. It's even different from our own ideas of power, authority, and kingship, even to this day. And I think the church has often missed this about the way of Jesus, about how the kingdom of God comes into the world, even still to this day. Jesus isn't talking about Israel's violent politics and hostile takeovers. He's talking about plundering the kingdom of darkness. He's talking about the kingdom of God in a way no one ever has. He isn't keeping up with the beloved traditions of the day. He purposely goes against them and exposes them for what they are. He isn't giving honor and care to their religious system and the leaders of his day. He is giving it to the poor, the possessed, the disenfranchised, the outcast, Gentile, tax collector, and prostitutes. 
Jesus isn't talking about the violent death of his enemies, but his own violent death at the hand of his enemies and his subsequent rising from the dead. Because this is what Jesus came to do. It's the main purpose. It's the hour for which he came into this world to give his life that through his death, we who are far from God, were subject to sin and death, might have life in his name. That we who were not part of the family of God or the promises of Abraham might be adopted as children of God and receive all the blessing and benefits of being children of God. He came that we who have been under the power of sin and death and demonic power might be released and brought into the kingdom of the son of his love. Jesus is the grain of wheat who dies, is buried, but whose death brings a fruitful crop to the people of the earth. He's the humble king who gives himself for the sake of his people. Even as Zechariah prophesied, the humble king who brings salvation. I think it's so important for us to understand this text and the background of it and what Jesus is doing in order to understand how Jesus is calling us, his people, his disciples, to follow him. Jesus continues, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now, if I could take all of this together, the triumphal entry in Jesus' statement about what it means to follow him, this is what I think Jesus is saying. This is my own kind of paraphrase. So you see all this talk and excitement of reclaiming the kingdom, the Jewish identity, the glory of Israel through violence and insurrection. This violence, this overthrow, this taking by force, this insistence on grasping for your life. This is how the world works and it will get you nowhere. It, in fact, it only perpetuates the evil that is already in the world. You will lose your life if you go this way. I am not here for that. I am here to save your life. I'm here for a greater kingdom and a greater glory. If you want the true glory, throw down these palm branches, your rights, your comforts, your preference, and hand your life over to me if you want to save it. And come follow me on the path that I'm taking. Follow Jesus on the path that he is taking. We've been talking about this a lot lately here at Calvary Costa Mesa. What it means to be a disciple. To be with Jesus. To become like Jesus. To do what Jesus did. To actually follow the life that Jesus chose for himself. That we take that up. We follow him wherever he goes. Now, Jesus tells us to hate our lives. 
And I truly believe that this is hyperbole because I think there is actually major issues within the church because people have taken this to an extreme and we actually haven't valued human life in the way that we're intended to. Humans are created by God. Humans are created for God, made in his image. There is incredible value. What Jesus is saying here is, hand your life over to me. Don't try to save your life. You don't know how to save it, and you can't save it. But I do, and I can. So if you truly value your life, you will hand it over to me. I think another way to view this is as we forfeit our life, what Jesus is saying, so many times it just looks like a waste to the world. What about you? What about your own you know, prominence? And what about your preferences? And what about you, what you want and what you think? It looks like a forfeiting of our life. But what Jesus is asking for is for us to give him full authority over us. Letting him define for us what is right and what is wrong. What is good and what is evil. What is beautiful. What is the purpose of life. He's inviting us once again to be his disciples. And Jesus says if we do this, we, we will be, in fact, saving our lives for the life that really matters. The full, overflowing, eternal life. Life in his name. Jesus is inviting us into his own identity. Follow me into my suffering into death, on into resurrection, and into the glory that the Father is going to bestow upon me. This is an incredible idea in Scripture. I remember years ago I was reading a commentary in First Peter, and it talks, uh, First Peter has, Peter's speaking to the church, and he's talking about trials and these things, and he says, you know, there will be praise, honor, and glory for you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's like, wow, that's incredible idea. You know, oftentimes we think about when we stand before the throne of God, you know, we will cast down our golden crowns and thou are worthy, thou are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor, right? And we do see that in Scripture, but there is also praise and honor and glory that comes from the Father to us. This divine commendation, well done, it was interesting, as I actually was reading this commentary on 1 Peter, every commentary I read says, I know it looks like it says that God is going to glorify his people and honor his people and praise his people, but that can't be what it actually means. Which is funny. Scripture says this again and again and again, that those who are Christ. We don't just share in his suffering. Actually, by sharing in his suffering, we share in the glory of Jesus Christ. We share in his honor. We share in his praise that he receives from the Father. What an incredible privilege 
for the people of God, that as we share in the sufferings of Christ, we will also share in his power and in his glory. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor them. Paul tells us that the glory and honor and goodness that God has waiting for those who have surrendered their lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, it's never been seen, it's never been heard of, it hasn't even entered into our imagination, the good things that God has for us. So let's now talk as we close just about the particular way in this passage that Jesus is inviting us to follow him. Now, I said Jesus says if we want to serve him, we have to follow him. We have to lay down our palm branches, our rights, our comforts, our preferences, handing our lives over to him. He's calling us to follow him into his humility, his suffering, his death, on into his resurrection. I would like to ask, how is this particular way of following Jesus being reflected in your life? Jesus endured incredible suffering in his life. It's amazing to realize that he actually chose this in order to identify with us in our suffering in our humble state, in order to redeem our suffering. George MacDonald has this famous quote that I love to recall in times of difficulty. The Son of God suffered unto death, he says, not that humans might not suffer, but that their sufferings might be like his. And I probably want to just clarify, suffering on its own is of no benefit this isn't some, you know, sadistic teaching from Scripture. Like, we need to learn to love suffering. But suffering united to Jesus actually brings life and renewal. Brings redemption. It can bring incredible goodness, which is so counterintuitive, can enlarge our hearts and empathy for others. Now, let me say, all of that is the fruit that suffering can bring because I believe in suffering what Christ does is he brings us so very close to his side. This is the desire of God in suffering is to pull us closer to himself to reveal more of himself to us. Paul continually speaks of the fellowship of Christ's suffering. And it would seem that scripture would indicate that there is a deeper knowledge, a deeper intimacy, a kinship that we can only know by suffering as Jesus' people. It's part of the path that he chose for himself. 
Now, is anybody doing any voluntary suffering? Anybody signing up for suffering? No, of course not, right? That would be very strange. Actually, Jordan, uh, Pastor Jordan and I are teaching a class on Wednesday nights at our gathering, a class on spiritual disciplines, just ways to engage our discipleship, to engage with the Spirit of God in order for God to do a deeper work in our hearts. And we have a whole sample, a menu of different disciplines that we can observe and practice. And so we give the option, you know, write out maybe your top 10 or top five, I think it was. And then we kind of tallied all them up together. No one chose the practice of solidarity in the sufferings of Christ. Not even myself, right? Is anyone looking for opportunities to lay down their rights, their comforts for the sake of others? In a society that has so many individual rights and freedoms, which are good, we're thankful for these, it would seem that our preconditioned and even preference were taught to avoid suffering and discomfort at all cost. Preston Sprinkle in his book, Fight, a Christian case for nonviolence, he says this, we live in a culture where all forms of suffering are avoided or at least medicated. I get a headache and I pop a pill. I get hungry, I eat immediately. If I feel cold, I put on one of my many coats. If I get tired, I rest. If I catch a cold, I crawl into bed, call in sick and pop another pill. And if I think that somebody is oppressing me, Watch out. Our culture gives us no categories to view suffering, especially suffering at the hands of an oppressor as victory. Our culture sees suffering only as defeat and as evil. It never sees suffering as a means of victory. This is why we need to read John about what's really going on from God's perspective to correct our American self-serving, I will defend my rights at all costs mindset. We need to follow the slaughtered lamb wherever he goes so that we can reign with him in victory. I read this because I think along with that, we know the story of Jesus. We know that Jesus suffered greatly. We know that many Christians throughout history have counted the cost in following Jesus and joined in the sufferings of Christ. But I read all this and say all this because I think we still believe and act as though when we suffer, something has gone wrong. As Christians... Suffering comes into our life, and we ask the question, what's wrong? Have I sinned? Is God angry with me? Has God forgotten me? Did I miss the signs along the way, and somehow I could have avoided all of this? There's even scriptures that we use to support this view. 
You will keep him whose mind is stayed on you in perfect peace because they trust in you. Many of us take that and interpret it to mean if I just focus myself on Christ and I stay totally in step with God, what? My life will be peaceful. I will avoid all difficulty and all suffering. We have to look at the context, actually, in which that is written. It's actually saying in the midst of conflict, in the, like, as the world is in upheaval and my life is chaos, as I trust in you, you will give me peace through it, not out of it. Honestly, as I thought through this text and, and worked through this passage, this is, what, this is my heart for this morning. I want to affirm you in your suffering. I want to tell you that it's not a mistake, that you haven't missed the will of God, but that God is actually leading us, as Psalm 23 says, through valleys of the shadow of death. And that's right in line with green pastures and still waters. And through it all, he is faithful to restore our souls. This is part of the path. It's part of the journey. Most of us know that some forms of suffering are unavoidable in this life. What we need to realize, though, is that suffering is absolutely unavoidable and necessary for all who will follow Jesus. For the follower of Jesus, it is part of the identity with Jesus. It's the fellowship of his sufferings. It's the friendship of Jesus, part of being his disciple, a necessary part of the journey as we follow Jesus through suffering and then on into glory. And through it, God is molding and shaping us into the image of Jesus Christ. I would like to avoid all suffering, but there is no other way to deeply know Christ and to be formed into his image. I was talking with Gary Lyles in between our gatherings, and he shared this quote with me from L.B. Cowman. Uh, she wrote The Streams in the Desert devotional that so many people love and have received comfort from. She says this, though, there is a divine mystery in suffering, one that has a strange and supernatural power and has never been completely understood by human reason. Paul the Apostle writes to the Corinthian church about this very thing. In 2 Corinthians 4, he says this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side and not crushed. Perplexed and not in despair. Persecuted and not abandoned. Struck down and not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may 
also be revealed in our mortal body. Or even more particularly, when Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, amen, and participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I said a moment ago that I want to affirm you in your suffering because I think for many of us, right, we just, God, teach me what I need to know so I can get out of this. That's not what suffering does. That's not what it's for. And that's not what our God is like. Maybe Christian, or excuse me, maybe American education is like that, right? Tell me the facts that I need to know so I can pass the class and get out of this program, right? <laughs> That's not how your Christian discipleship happens. The purpose of our discipleship is to bring us in, to draw us closer, to know God in a deeper and more intimate way. And through that, to bring goodness, to bring fruit, to bring blessing through our lives. Years ago, my wife and I were up pastoring uh, the church in Northern California. There was a really difficult season that we went through uh, where we were working with our team and just a season of conflict and feeling very misunderstood, um, very judged and condemned. and. Um, by people that we thought were with us and knew us. It was really difficult. And I have to say the temptation in all of this was to cut and run. And the way that our American church system is set up these days, we can do that, can't we? I have conflict with somebody in this fellowship. Well, guess what? There's a hundred others 10 miles away. And I can go and I can just have fellowship over there. And I don't have to go through the painful process of suffering through reconciliation and repentance and working things out. And this was a big, big temptation for me in the season. I even had some advice. You know, probably best just to fire all those people and just, you know, start over again. And you know what? That sounded real good at the time. The temptation is to say, I do not want to suffer. I want to avoid this at all costs. And so I'm going to short-circuit this process by taking the easy way out. We chose not to do that. We chose to work through the process, and it was extremely painful. And yet, through this process, God led me into a practice that I had never observed before, and that was to sit quietly in the presence of God without excuse, without prayer request and list of what I wanted God to do, but just to sit before God and just to say, Lord, know me. Search my heart. Know me. And just help me. And this was a season of my life I had never experienced anything like this before, but I began to just be reunited to the Lord in such a deep way and to really sense my own belovedness. That it wasn't about whether this church 
succeeded or failed? Because that's what it felt like, right? It felt like, well, you're a failure and this is falling apart and all these things are happening. And you begin to lose a sense of yourself and your grounding and your identity. But I, be, I received a new identity or a fresh identity in Christ as a beloved son in whom God was well pleased. And I was drawn in to deep intimacy in the love of Jesus. This is what God desires to do in and through suffering. This is why we open our hands and participate in the sufferings of Christ. Jesus is asking us, his disciples, to join in his humility in cases to actually choose to suffer rather than to short-circuit the process and avoid it at all cost. He is calling us to follow him. And through our suffering, God is giving us a greater knowledge and fellowship with Jesus. In our suffering, Jesus gives us himself. And so I want to ask, are you struggling even to love others where it would be so much easier to shut off that part of your heart and just to say, I'm done, this is too difficult, too great of a struggle. Are you struggling to love others? Are you struggling to follow Jesus in overcoming sin and temptation? In your life, are there sacrifices that you are making Burdens that you are bearing, crosses that you are picking up. If so, this is actually good. This means you are on the path of following Jesus. Of course, we would love conflict free lives of comfort and ease, but God is not trying to do that for us. He's trying to raise us from the dead. He's forming Christ in us. And that is difficult work that we have to go through. But each time we give ourselves over to the suffering, because we are Jesus' people, whether it be an unexpected trial or we give our lives over to the death of our own selfishness, our rights and comforts, we are planting seeds that bring forth new life in us. New life in others. Seeds that bring deep fellowship with Jesus himself. Deeper Knowledge and revelation of the goodness, of the kindness, of the companionship of Jesus. And finally, glory and honor that comes from the Father. You know, it's interesting to note in all the religions of the world... Only two deal seriously with suffering. And these are the religion of Buddhism and Christianity. 
Buddhism tells us to embrace suffering because it makes you stronger. Christianity says, embrace suffering as you follow Jesus and watch God redeem all suffering and use it for good. Watch him raise it up to life. Now this morning, I don't know if it's enough for us just to hear it, but I would encourage us as we come to the communion table that we would participate in this. What I mean is that this morning, we are invited to meet Jesus at the table of his suffering. We're reminded week after week that this bread here represents Christ's body that was broken, that was crushed, that suffered for us. We're reminded of the blood of the new covenant that was shed for the forgiveness of sin. This is the table of Jesus' suffering, and he says, come, sit at my table. Let me be your companion in your suffering. Be with me. And so, I invite you this morning, come and meet our Lord at his table. Tell him your woes. Share your burdens. And receive his friendship and fellowship in your suffering and life in his name.